Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode... 201. Uh, as I understand it, so it's quite, I think I find it quite funny, just like when I go to the park and I see like this great loping greyhound or this fierce Alsatian and then I look at my dog and I'm like, how are you the same species? <laughs> I think about the fact that my dog, my little dog who is basically, you know, a, an animate teddy bear in terms of survival skills. And think about the fact that he's in some way distantly related to a wolf, it seems bizarre. And there's a lot of lovely sort of evolutionary science that you can read in terms of how that happened. That is Kate Lever. She has a new book out called Good Dog, celebrating the dogs who change and sometimes even save our lives. And that will be the topic of this episode. Who is Kate Lever? So my name is Kate Lever. I'm a journalist and an author. Kate has another book called The Friendship Cure, and she was on this show not too long ago talking about that in the time since she wrote this book, Good Dog, which I love. I love this book because it details the science behind what dogs do to our minds, to our brains, to our bodies, just by coexisting with us, by being companions. It has a lot of studies, a lot of science, the history of our relationship with dogs, but it focuses on the role that dogs play in enriching and improving our mental and emotional health. So by way of science, it's also a celebration of friendship, friendship with another species. It also has this really cool structure where it focuses on 10 personal stories of dogs and their owners, and it becomes sort of a character study, chapter by chapter, of different dogs and how those dogs are impacting the lives of particular people, and then it goes into the science behind how that works. You'll learn about dogs that can smell cancer, can smell changes in people's blood sugar, but also dogs that are absolutely crucial in helping people deal with autism, dogs that help people deal with PTSD, with sexual violence, and more. It is an incredible read, and I love Kate Lever, the author and journalist. To let you know something, though, before we get into it, we talk for about half an hour or more just about life and stuff and dogs and how she wrote the book. And then we get into the science about a half hour in. So with that, here is my interview with Kate Lever about her new book, Good Dog. The last time we spoke, 
um, you had, we were, we were work from promoting your book, the friendship cure. Mm. And that, that episode really actually had huge reverberations in my life. Um, I had a lot of feedback, a lot of email, more, more feedback than I'd ever really had for any episode leading up to that. And it was from mostly men who had really gotten the message of maybe I should reach out to my male friends and tell them that I love them and tell Mm. them I'm thinking about them. And that's the only reason I'm going to do it. Like I, I I don't have anything else to talk about. And so people wrote that that had really deeply affected them and helped their change their lives. And then I also did the same thing with my friends and it also deeply affected me and also changed my life. So uh, I want to just start by saying thank you very much for that book and for that interview and for that. Um, just you dropped a, a pebble in a pond and the ripples are still moving out. Oh, that just means so much to me because I mean, really the whole reason I wrote that book on that topic was to encourage people to get back in touch with other people and to think about, you know, the possibility of loneliness and what it might feel like and, and what they might be able to do to change that situation. Um, and sometimes it's it's funny. I mean, you might know, feel this way as well as someone who puts, you know, ideas um, into the world. Sometimes, you, you know, you sit there on your own with a laptop for so long writing things that you feel passionately about and you're just never sure they'll connect with any other real human beings so it just means the world and you know sometimes I still wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I'm like oh my god was my book bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah that'll happen the rest of your life by the way uh so (laughs) (laughs) so it's just so thrilling to hear that you know that it affected anyone and especially men because I spend so much of my career um, you know, thinking about the basic experience of one well, of the basic experience, the very complicated experience of being a woman in the world. Um, and I really thought deeply about how friendship and loneliness affects men. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just so thrilled. And I also, I mean, the reason I, 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 I was so delighted to come on again is because I had so much feedback as well from that episode I did with you, probably more than any other media I did for the friendship. Oh, that's so good. That yeah. makes me feel great. Uh, it was it meant a lot to me, and uh, um, you you did something really good. So uh, I don't know what else to say except uh, thank you. I think you I think that was really great, and I'm really happy that we were able to collaborate and and help people get that message. So thank you good. so much. And I hope that that's what we're going to do here because you hear that nice segue. Uh, the uh, <laughs> I'm only doing that because you said that in the book um, in the in the introduction you were talking about how and I'm looking at my notes over here uh, mm-hmm. the the friendship cure, you know, was about loneliness. And you said that this new book is really an extension of the idea, except now it's about the companionship we experience with dogs. Um, so sometimes when I do an interview, I ask, why did you write this book? But I think you told me, but I'm going to go ahead and ask anyway, like why, what made you want to write this book? Yeah. I mean, lovely question. Really. I was sort of searching for my, for my next big project and uh, because last time, I mean, I, the friendship book came out in 2018 and I'm still getting emails most days from people wanting a quote about, you know, how friendship is affected by the pandemic or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought to myself, like, I need to pick, um, or rather, actually, my boyfriend said to me, you need to pick a topic um, that you're happy to talk about for a really long time after the book comes out, something you <laughs> care about enduringly. Um, and something that also, like, you know, I am, like, 
a dangerously sensitive person. I take on other people's um, worries and concerns and problems very much. And so I just sort of, it needed to be something that was going to be uplifting and enduringly interesting to me. Yeah. Um, and my first thought was I, I must have been cuddling my dog, Bert, a, an almost four-year-old shih tzu uh, at the time. And I think I basically kind of gestured casually to the dog and was like, how about I write a, do- a book about about my dog? <laughs> um, and at first I was joking, but I also was not joking um, because I had had, you know, a really sort of um, elucidating experience of, of how much that dog was an emotional support to me. And I originally started looking into the idea of emotional support animals because, um, well, particularly in America, actually, there are some really interesting ones. There was an emotional support peacock who went on a plane somewhere in America, an emotional support duck who went on a train. I saw the dog. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I know. I'm starting to sound like a Dr. Seuss book. Um, (laughs) And I was kind of interested in that, but then the, the more research I did and the more kind of, reflecting uh, I kind of just realized that I I just wanted to focus on what I essentially think is the most extraordinary cross-species friendship in the world and that is between dogs and human beings and and I know that cat people will probably disagree with me there (laughs) but you know so be it (laughs) I I have a cat his name is Simon he's been very special to me uh but I did grow but I grew up I mean I'm an only child I grew up with a dog as my sibling Mm. Her name was Ruby. She was a German Shepherd, and I spent uh, all day, every day with her. Uh, I grew up in a very rural place in the woods, and uh, so we would just go out like anime characters every day and and, and run through the woods, oh, and uh, nice. and lie down in fields. And um, you know, she uh, she grew up in the house as a puppy, but she had a a a, a chair that she would go into that she would sleep in. She eventually got too big for it because she's a big German Shepherd. Yeah. Um, when she was much uh, older, she had puppies, and we couldn't find them. When she finally had the puppies, and uh, that we had thrown that chair away, and she found it, uh, oh. and uh, it was like in a trash pile deep in the woods. She found it, and that's no. where she had her puppies. <gasps> you remembered like the security of it. Oh my and god! I remember going into the chair as cushions and pulling all the puppies out and making her a play. No. Oh my god! That what an extraordinary story! I wish so I could good. interview me. <laughs> so good, so good, so good. And she, um, at one time, I remember before she had puppies when she stole someone's kittens and brought them home. And she so she had like three kittens that she tried to raise as her own, and they eventually became our cats. We don't know where they came from. Uh, oh god! Oh my great. god! I mean, these are children's movies waiting to be. To be <laughs> <laughs> she was great. She was absolutely super special to me. Also, oddly enough, someone um, she didn't die from this, but someone shot her, uh, oh, and she was god. shot through the um, like through her breasts, like she had like uh, when she was nursing. And uh, my aunt is a veterinarian, and so we, I actually sat with her through the entire surgery. Where we, um, oh, wow. uh, I clamped off her arteries while they, while they, she uh, removed the fragments of the bullet and cleaned the wound and everything. So, like, I was just, she was just very, very important to me. I've, I've met several people here recently who've had uh, dogs, and who, as you said, like through the pandemic, they've just been so incredibly important to them. Um, I also know someone who, uh, and I promise I'll get into your book in a second, but I wanted to commiserate. Like, Thank you. For like, time. She, um, 
I know someone who had a really traumatic uh, year a, a couple years ago, and I didn't know. I remember she got a uh, a elderly dog from from the um, from the pound, I guess you would say, and she. Um, and it was interesting. She adopted a dog that was very old and uh, had lived a whole life before. A very tiny little do- little doggy that looks like a, mm-hmm. like a little sausage. And um, at some point, I, I asked her why she got such an elderly dog, and she told me her um, she was contemplating suicide, and she thought, "I will go get this dog." And I will take care of this dog. And when the, when when this dog passes away, then I'll commit suicide. Wow. And it was her plan. It was her strange plan. Yeah. But then after about a year, uh, she just so fell in love with this animal that she abandoned the plan. Mm. Uh, she was like, uh, she learned a new verve, a new passion for life through taking care of this little tiny animal. And, uh, you're, I thought about that so much reading your book, like the, the, the power of what's happening here. And if you, you know, we can get very psychological about it and neurological and break it down into, you know, pseudo children and oxytocin and everything, but I can do that for anything. Uh, it doesn't take away from the fact that we live here in, in this space where uh, we wrestle with our humanity. And yes, sure. There are things underlining it. There are blood vessels in my brain, but, if I want to get down to that level and get reductionist, I could, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the splendor of what it is to connect to an animal. And I know it personally. Uh, and I have people that I care about. I've seen them, uh, seeing her story was just so huge to me. And, and I've have not stopped thinking about that since I heard it. And then when your book came along, I was like, I wonder where Kate's going to go with this. And you went exactly where I hoped you would go with it. It's a very personal, emotional, and unapologetic exploration of the power of what it is to connect to a being from another species in that way. And dogs co-evolved with us, so they also connect back. And there's just something happening there that's almost impossible to articulate. You did a great job of doing your, of doing as good as anyone could ever do trying to articulate that uh, thing. Thank you so much. I mean, I think I will probably think about that story that you just told me about your friend for quite a long time as well, because I, you know, I uh, I live with depression, um, and in my darkest moments, do think about, uh, you know, not wanting to exist anymore. Um, I, I don't think I've ever sort of made quite such a practical plan as your as your friend. Uh, practical is the wrong word. I meant, you know, kind of a, a solid uh, plan. Um, and I think about the connection between uh, the mortality or the life expectancy of the animals that we so closely tie ourselves to quite a lot, um, partly because when my grandma was alive, she, she this book is dedicated to my grandma because she's the only she's the only other person I've ever known who is quite so kind of battily devoted to dogs. <laughs> like all animals, yes, more so than people, but also dogs. She really lived for them. But... Um, uh, I was thinking about it because when we first took her to get a rescue dog after my grandpa passed away, um, she first had her eyes on this little dog, this little puppy, and this incredible woman who ran this uh, rescue centre in, um, you know, sort of the, the suburbs of Sydney basically said to my grandmother, no, you cannot have that dog because you will die before he does. 
um, and I won't give you I, I won't give you a dog that that's that's so young because I want my dogs to live their full life with their next person. Um, and it was a kind of interesting to me because, for one, I thought, like, do not speak to my grandmother about her mortality <laughs> on the occasion when we are just picking up a dog for her. But also I thought, do you know what? Dog shelters should have someone like this woman running them because I think a lot of people, particularly during the pandemic, are kind of like, oh, I'd love a little chihuahua just to keep me company or, you know, I'd love a dog now that I'm at home from the office and they don't think so much about what, you know, they're going to do to when they have to go back to work. And I just thought that that was quite an interesting kind of like gatekeeper instinct from this woman. Um, <laughs> now I think a lot about the fact, I mean, I, ha I from this same incredible kind of prison warden-esque woman, I adopted my first dog that I um, got as an adult woman um, when I was in my mid-20s. Uh, also a Shih Tzu because I consider Shih Tzus to be, or Shih, Shih Tzu and some other something else going on, definitely not pedigree, um, uh, because I consider Shih Tzus to be the um, ultimate physical manifestation of cuteness. Uh, <laughs> but she was elderly when I got her. Her name was Natasha and I renamed her Lady Fluffington because I was going through a phase when I thought that that was a really great name. Oh, that's, now, a great name. Be, hey, that's a good name, Lady Fluffington. <laughs> her silent middle name was Beyonce because she really had sort of a terrific attitude, like a, just sort of wonderful diva. Um, but, she, you know, I had her for the last six years of her life. And I think this time around when I was adopting my dog that I have now, who, as I say, is a lot younger than I had expected to adopt, I sort of couldn't, I didn't have it within me in that moment, I think, even on an unconscious level, to adopt another elderly dog, even though I think it's such a beautiful thing to do because the grief is still with me from losing that first, from losing my yeah. And it's just like I think one of the great sadnesses that dogs have such a short life expectancy compared to the human beings. Um, yeah, we're their elves, right? You know. we're the, I've seen people say that before. Like we're the we're the el we're the elves of the dog world. You know, they live <laughs> yeah. like in all of our our magic and splendor and our our long lives, and they only get the they're, they're the mortals of that world. The yeah. and George Carlin had a joke back in the day where he's like. You know, when you adopt a, a dog, you're inviting a small tragedy into your life, uh, and, yes. and then, like, as, you know, if you bring yourself to have another, you're like, well, I guess I'll have another tragedy now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I definitely feel that every every time Simon has a birthday, I'm like, oh, buddy, oh, we only have so much time together. But that's part of it. Also, it's, it's a huge part of exploring your humanity in that regard too. You know. Um, oh. Absolutely. And you know what? Um, I mean, this this might be sort of a dark thought, but sometimes I have them actually quite often. Um, <laughs> I've been to like a really upsetting number of funerals for young people and seen parents have to bury their children, which is something that is so like fundamentally goes against what should happen for the human experience. It's just such a, you know, unique tragedy. Um, and and so I, I, and I don't want to, you know, go too deep into, as you say, comparing children to dogs because, you know, there are sure, columnists from The Guardian over here who get in a real tears about people who do that. But essentially... You're oh, just well, give me that person's number. <laughs> I'll look it up. Um, but essentially you're just talking about the premature exit from life of someone you love. Yeah. And, um, you know, it can be really affecting. And, I, you know, like I thank you and anyone else who does this who treats um, the topic of grief with regards to dogs um, and the connection that we can have very seriously. Because yeah. 
like extremely serious about my love for my dog. I'm also very flippant and silly about it. And, you know, I love to put him in hats and take his picture. But also, like, as I write, you know, in, in the book and elsewhere, like, just like your friend, my my dog has kept me alive. Like, he gives me a sense of myself um, when I don't feel as though I can participate in my own life because of the chemicals in my brain. And that is so powerful. I can't think of anything yes. more powerful. Um, yeah, I mean... Carl Jung talked about when we learn when we learn something new about us. Like, if you to love to love an animal is to also know that you can love an animal, right? You don't just have the experience; you gain the knowledge that you can have the experience. And to, in, in many ways, your the ability to have this much compassion and empathy and an actual love for. Uh, a small creature that in some other condition might just be, you know, running around in the woods or, or living in the streets or something like that. You know, to know that you can connect to something like that is to learn to connect to something like that is to learn that you can do that. Mm. And it will necessarily open up a new space inside of you. Um, he, uh, Piaget talked about assimilation and accommodation where when we receive novel information from the world, we, uh, if we can find a way to make it fit into our existing understanding, we just assimilate it and it almost kind of seamlessly becomes part of us. But if it doesn't fit into our model of reality, we must grow as a human being to accommodate it. And the, I think that if you are really present and attentive to the idea of connecting to, it doesn't have to be a dog, but dogs are so co-evolved with us that it's going to be a powerful experience mm -hmm. that does open you up to the fact that this is possible within within you and that will be laterally applied to other things in your life, which could be children. If you haven't, if you don't have children yet, it could also be partners. If you haven't partnered up with someone in a way that you felt it's deep and unabiding unconditional love because you're receiving unconditional love from an animal that would do anything for you. It also, as you detail in the book, there's so much work and research that with dogs and therapeutic domains where that is often what they offer, whether if it's a person has autism or a person who is suffering PTSD, or a person who is a victim of sexual violence, the something happens in the learning to accommodate the love of a dog that opens up spaces to heal these other things in your life. That was uh, such a tremendous thing that you wrote about in the book, and I fully, uh, I fully like, yeah. Give me the number of the person that thinks that there's something wrong with this, or something. Fl Flipping about it. I feel like this I'll is a track person, down. I'll track them down. There are a few. <laughs> this is a person who can't enjoy a banana split. This is a, I feel like this is a person who's like, like uh, coffee is just chemicals that go into your brain and blah, 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 you know. So like, I have no need for that. So that level of reductionism in my life. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? 
if our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, 
it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I say all this to commiserate with you and say that I deeply uh, enjoyed what you've done here, and I don't. And I, I think it's, uh, I think it's actually very high-minded and deep, and, and deep-souled. Uh, regardless of what I think, some people would be like, "Oh, a dog book?" Like, no, this is a dog book you should read. Um, so, so I want to get into some of the topics. Okay, um, let's do yeah, it. Uh, let's talk about Birdie for a second. Uh, I feel like you could talk about Birdie for six hours, so I'm not oh, going. Good. Don't get me started. I'm, I'm not going to let you do that because I want to talk about some of the scientific stuff. But uh, tell me about Birdie, who you refuse to call your fur baby, which, uh, you know, respect there. But uh, like still, this is like this is what a like a child. And as we already said, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. Tell me how you got Birdie and what Birdie has done for you. Um, so Birdie is yeah almost four years old. We gave him an arbitrary birthday because, of course, with rescue dogs, um, they go into the shelter and they have a, a vet examine them and basically sort of estimate their age. Um, so he was nine months old when we got him, uh, which, as I say, is way younger than I ever expected to get. I've not really like I love puppies that, you know, I think there's something very um, deep in my soul that reacts to very small, fluffy things. Um, but I never intended to get a puppy because they wee everywhere and they chew everything. Um, but here I was on uh, the Battersea website. Battersea is a very old, very entrenched institution in the UK. It's, um, it's the dog and cat shelter. I was on their website. I found his pictures. I fell in love. Um, I messaged my boyfriend 63 times in a two-hour period, um, <laughs> getting sort of increasingly desperate to get this dog. Um, basically, long story short, we ended up bringing him home no, no, no! Don't you, don't you, don't you? Long story short, this you printed out pictures of Birdie oh, and yeah. put them in your bed sheets and cabinets. <laughs> I was wondering just like how much I should lean into the crazy dog lady. <laughs> but, but here, here we go. Uh, so yes, I there were maybe four photographs of Bert. Um, previous, you know, the, the puppy previously known as Mungo, because um, they just give any names. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, on the website, I got the pictures and just like using whatever basic text thing on my phone that I could do, just put a little caption on, on top of the pictures <laughs> saying, why won't you love me and Kate needs me in her life and come and pick me up, please. Just like all this like deeply emotionally manipulative stuff. Uh, <laughs> and my boyfriend. And I made a collage. There's some kind of function where you can like get photos and then multiply them and multiply them and multiply them until they're like hundreds of tiny photos in little tiles of the original photo. Uh, so I did that with these pictures, um, with these emotionally manipulative captions. Um, and like, I don't, I don't enjoy using printers at the best of times, but um, you know, I made an exception and used one for this purpose, printed out a bunch of photos of this dog 
you know, starting with the, the big size and then um, increasingly getting, you know, more and more ranged uh, with the lots of lots of little tiles of the dog. Um, yeah, printed out those pictures and just to really like bring home that message that I really, really, really wanted this dog, I slipped the pictures um, under our bed sheets in our bedroom. Um, I taped one under the toilet seat. Um, I put one on uh, my boyfriend Jono's side of the kind of bathroom cabinet because I knew that when he got home because he was working late that night or he occasionally works late and I knew that his routine would be to go straight upstairs, like go to the bathroom, open the cabinet to clean his teeth and then, you know, pull the sheets back to go to bed. So at every step of that nighttime routine, I was going to get him with increasingly compact um pictures of this dog um so yeah that that I think pushed him over the line and I think you know originally it might have been just placating me because he knew that if he didn't agree to go and see this dog he might have a serious sort of argument on his, on his hands um but now you know I think he probably especially during this pandemic loves the dog as much as I do although he is slightly more dignified about it um <laughs> because as you say you know like my book and my general attitude in life is extremely unapologetic um in terms of the enthusiasm I have for particular people and particular topics and particular animals yeah Um, but basically like not too long after we got Bert um and brought him home and fell you know fully in love with him um I had an extremely annoying um interaction with what we call the NHS over here, um, the National Health Service, I think it is, um, which is a wonderful thing. In in England, you don't have to pay to go to the doctor. You don't have to pay to have any mental health care um, or not mental, any health care at all. Uh, strangely enough, it doesn't really cover dentistry, which is, a, you know, has been a, a joke for many years with stand-up comedians because British people are famous for having bad teeth. I'm Australian, so I don't. Um, but essentially, we moved to house to a new area and in that area I suddenly couldn't get the antidepressants I was on Mm. Um, and you have to register with a doctor in your postcode and so I finally after waiting five months saw a psychiatrist to get a new prescription um, for my literally life-saving medication and he was like no don't have that because of this postcode Uh, you either have to move house or change medication. Um, I've been on many different antidepressants and other various kind of mental health treatments um, throughout my entire life. Since puberty, basically, I've been dealing with uh, mood stabilising and um, uh, treatment and stuff like that. Uh, So when you find a treatment that works, you want to be able to continue to get it from the pharmacy. So when he told me that, I was like, oh, um, well, I guess... I guess the less disruptive option of those two things, moving house and changing medication, is to change medication. Uh, You know, having been through the fallout of that, I'm actually not sure. Um, Changing medication can be a really rough time. If you're lucky, it can go quite smoothly. Um, If you're unlucky, it's essentially like having, and it depends on the medication you're on, but it's essentially you deal, deal with the withdrawal symptoms of coming off one drug, which can be really intense. Mm-hmm. For me, it had all these kind of like electric shock feelings in my brain. Yeah, the brain zaps, um, they say sometimes. Yeah, the brain zaps, exactly. Really distressing stuff um, as well as just mood freefall. And then to make sure the medications didn't clash, I had to be on no medication for a few weeks, which was bleak. Mm. And then there were the sort of, you know, like 
just like playing around with some side effects of new medication. So it was like quite a long period of time of real unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a really lovely support network. I'm financially secure enough that I can still pay to talk to my psychiatrist in Australia who I've had a relationship with for 15 years or something, so really knows me. Um, you know, I, 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 I am secure in my, in my career and I call my parents every morning of my life. I have really wonderful friends, which, you know, inspired me to write that my first book. So I'm incredibly lucky. Um, but all those people ha- and, and my partner is, like, wonderfully supportive. But all those people have everyday professional obligations. They have to go to work. They have to get on with their own lives. So they can't literally sit with me and make sure I'm still going to breathe for the rest of the day and that I'm okay. And that, you know, I eat things and shower and stuff like that, which, you know, seem like such basic things, but when you're depressed, um, they're just gargantuan tasks, Mm -hmm. which sometimes feel impossible. Um, but Bert, not that he's going to make me dinner, Bert had no such professional obligations. So he was able to just spend all his time with me around the clock, um, at, which was just deeply, deeply soothing and life-changing because he would just, I mean, basically he would just stay by my side, which he doesn't always do around the house because I work from home. So he often curls up in a ball on a sofa and leaves me alone to go and do my work in another room Um, or is quite happy just like on constant patrol where he can see the garden and check if there's a cat there. But when I was unwell, he just glued himself to me like a pilot fish and wouldn't move. Um, And the sweetest thing he did was actually lie himself across my chest with his little head in the nook of my neck or on my shoulder, Um, which is really interesting he did that because they actually, when I looked into it, someone told me that they actually trained therapy dogs to do that um, because there's quite a lot of evidence that having sort of light but firm pressure on your body, particularly around your heart and your chest, can be very comforting and soothing. So with people who have panic and anxiety attacks, if they have an emotional assistance dog, often they are trained to lie on them. Um, some of some of these dogs are really big dogs. Um, I think even like Labradors, Golden Retrievers, big dogs have been trained to like lie or sit on autistic children because there's something about the soothing, I think something about the way it affects your nervous system. Yeah. I suppose it's similar to a weighted blanket yeah. um, in that it just calms you right down. So he does that instinctively, which I think is wonderful. And obviously, you know, I have a very high opinion of my dog's emotional atten- intelligence. <laughs> but as you'll know, because you read the book, I also, my favourite sort of style of journalism and writing is to um, take an instinct I have based on my emotional intelligence and my real life life experience and then talk to experts to get the research and the science to back it up. So that's what I did again. Exactly what you did. Uh, Like I love, I mean, you start the book out talking about um, the, uh, I'm looking at my notes over here. You you start the book uh, talking about just the co-evolution with dogs, you know, uh, Mm. the 14, we're going to get back to birdie, but this is, I'm going to segue into this. 14,000, years ago mm-hmm. uh, we, we have um, remains that have been dated to 14,000 years ago uh, of a family uh, who that they their remains and the dog's remains are all buried together um, mm-hmm. they lived their life together with this animal 14,000 years ago yeah uh, and we also have 
uh, 8,000 years ago in Siberia, North America, 9,000 years ago. Um, it's in the chemical analysis. You said that they are, they ate the same food as the mm -hmm. humans did. Um, it would seem from the archeological evidence and from the archeologists who studied this, that, that they treated them as equals as, as members of their family. And so we've been doing that for as long as we've had, uh, I mean, pre-civilization pre and in some way dogs were likely a civilizing feature of, of, of the human, uh, you know, story. The, um, that's not to say that we all, the archeological archeological evidence also indicates that humans ate dogs that, uh, they, yeah. but something, I that in the book. I had to. <laughs> but, but something happened, uh, where they crossed over into our lives and became, it became, uh, for most human cultures, uh, inconceivable to kill and eat dogs. So if you could talk about that for just a minute about like, what does it seem, what did you see in the research about how, how did they go from being wolves that followed us around to being family members? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting and it's, isn't it? Uh, as I understand it. So it's quite, I think I find it quite funny. Just like when I go to the park and I see like this great loping greyhound or this fierce Alsatian. And then I look at my dog and I'm like, how are you the same species? Bizarre. <laughs> I think about the fact that my dog, my little dog who is basically, you know, a, an animate teddy bear in terms of survival skills. Um, and think about the fact that he's in some way distantly related to a wolf. It seems bizarre. And there's a lot of lovely sort of evolutionary science that you can read in terms of how that happened. But basically, to bring it down to sort of just a simple way of understanding it, like over very, very many years, I mean, you've just mentioned it's a long time ago since mm -hmm. um, humans and dogs have been coexisting. Essentially what some scientists, and there will definitely be scientists who disagree with this, don't email me. <laughs> but essentially the sort of consensus is that originally wolves hung out with with kind of people who were hunting hunting and gathering um as like hunting companions really um because they were useful um but perhaps humans in their kind of craving of affection from other um living beings kind of chose the friendlier of those wolves to be companions in a more kind of, I guess, not too much of a stretch to say friendship uh, capacity. Yeah. You know, they were companions as well as being, you know, a type of animal who would act as a guard dog and warn them if there were other creatures coming towards them or other people, you know, enemies. Um, so it was kind of a, a safety thing that began um, for... I guess, useful and strategic reasons. And then over time became more about the survival of the cutest rather than <laughs> because... <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> it's such a good line. It's because you say in the book, <laughs> it's less about survival of the fittest, more about survival of the cutest. And if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, 33,000 years ago, around about, you know, these wolves are doing what wolves do, but they're, wolves as you write in the book they don't necessarily let you just take their food from them right mm -hmm. uh, so it wasn't what was useful about them was that they followed us around there's nothing you could do about it but they would bark at bad things so that's nice um <laughs> but like we weren't like training them to be like uh these murder hounds 
because no. that it was that the evidence doesn't suggest that was taking place. What suggests what was taking place is that over time, some of them were friendlier than others, and mm -hmm. humans did what humans did. We like we would do with a fox, so like we would do with a yeah. with a uh, an elephant or anything that seemed like it was communing with us from the animal world, and mm -hmm. and also we could speculate the spiritual tr like traditions of these very ancient people probably were very attuned to the uh, animal world, to the natural world. Yeah. And so the idea of something being a, an ambassador from that world would have been very powerful. And so they, um, and they you know, there, there's the famous fox study in Russia where we, they very quickly uh, domesticated foxes and the foxes immediately got floppy ears and they immediately yes. got tails. Yeah. So we were doing that and they just started to, we just, I mean, what happened was they were really fucking cute. <laughs> so, exactly. so somebody um, probably was like, I'm going to raise it. I'm going to keep it. And I can only imagine like, like this, you know, the, oh, you shouldn't do you know, it. And then this happened enough that they, we just sort of adopted each other in that way. I can, and, and we still got all the other benefits. They barked at danger and everything, but the, yeah, what yeah, you I, suggest in the book, what happened was, we fell in love with them, which is a different um, narrative than I often see when we talk about this arc. I think that's really neat. Well, yeah, and I just, I mean, I don't always think about what I'm going to say next while you're talking, but I was going to say the phrase floppy ears next because it really did happen over time. And I'm talking about a very long time, you know. This oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're, like, dogs, when sort of wolves... Um, became more dog-like their ears got flappier they learned to wag their tails more there's even some really great research that talks about how dogs in their sort of more modern incarnation um, have learned how to widen their eyes um, so literally that puppy eyes thing we talk about as being you know one of those really famous trademarks of cuteness mm -hmm. um, is, is something they've learned they've adapted to do because you know, dogs in their current state, most of them, unless they were raised more in more wolf-like circumstances, wouldn't last that long on their own. Like a lot of them are, like most of them, and I'm talking like very much about my dog here, would not last in the wilderness. So it's in their interests to be as cute as possible to trigger that kind of protective nurturing instinct in us you know which some of us have uh more strongly than others um to protect them so it's a survival instinct to be yeah. as cute as possible that's which, right you know, <laughs> they tricked us we, we yes, did it we did it, but we did it to them i mean we selectively bred them so they didn't trick oh, us yeah. we wanted well, it to happen yeah, and I, I didn't go too much into that in the book, but it, it is a bit grim, um, the way that people have act like proactively bred dogs yeah. for cuteness and for their own purposes. You know, for instance, like I think pugs and stuff like that are very, very cute. That You know, I talk about one in the book. They look like loaves of bread when they love lie down. I love them. But a lot of them have pretty bad breathing issues. True, and a lot yeah. of sorts of dogs have kind of been curated and, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're probably designed. at the tail end of that era. But they, when dogs became, when having a little cute dog was a, uh, and it became, when it became jewelry of some sort, like, like we started really, like a lot of the breeds that we have now, if I, if I remember correctly, a lot, many, most of the breeds were created very recently. Uh, yeah. uh, we didn't have this wide variety of different kinds of dogs uh, um, just, just 150, 200 years ago. So, 
Uh, that's sort of a recent uh, weird thing that people did. Uh, the but then talking about in this this long history, like um, the cuteness thing, it's not like that's um, it's not like that's a has no value. It has incredible value. One of the first studies you talk about is um, this 2015 study in Japan where they had oh, people yeah. uh, they had people pee and then they played with a dog for 30 they, they, and they kept their pee and that's it. That was the whole study. No, no, no. They had people, they had people pee, they kept their pee. They played with a dog for 30 minutes and then they peed again and they tested it. And um, what did they find in that study? That's the really incredible it's probably study. my favorite study. Um, it was by... Uh, a Japanese researcher um, who has two standard poodles, and I think their names were Anita and Jasmine, um, which I just love because, you know, I really endorse the fact that you've called your cat Simon because I love really human names <laughs> for dogs um, and cats. But so he basically wanted to test why his bond was so strong with these beautiful poodles. Um, so, yeah, he did this wee test and he was looking in the wee for an increase in oxytocin. Um, so oxytocin is what we uh, sometimes call the cuddle hormone or the hug hormone. Um, it has a really strong role in the bond parents and their human children have. Um, basically sustained eye contact and physical touch can trigger the release of oxytocin. And oxytocin in our system is very comforting. It's very reassuring. It makes us feel safe. And so when you're kind of uh, creating a feedback loop with another living being where you're both getting oxytocin from contact with each other, it's very bonding. Mm. Um, so this test was looking at whether, yeah, they, you know, we in a cup, go play with their dog uh, for half an hour. And obviously some people didn't play with the dog and some people I think played with wolves and then they came back and tested the oxytocin levels again. And if I'm correct, the human beings who played with it, what played with and also like locked eyes with and had deliberate eye contact with over a half hour period had a 300% increase in oxytocin levels. And it's great. I mean, that's conclusive, isn't it? And also just in case you think the dogs are not having a nice time or not getting out as much out of it, they had a 130% increase in their oxytocin levels. So it really is a reciprocal thing, which is the whole point of this lovely thing. The we have they co-evolved with us and we are now bonded dogs love humans and humans mm. love dogs and we come out of the womb feeling this way because we co-evolved like thirty thousand years of evolution has changed the way we feel when we look at a dog and it has also changed the way they feel when they look at us it also changed our bodies some you write yeah. in the book that some scientists say that humans have a diminished sense of smell because we started depending on dogs' sense of smell to make up for the lack that we had. And they were like, well, they're so good at it. Why do I need this? And you know, so the, body, <laughs> the body conserved it. But the dogs changed too. You know, they basically develop eyebrows and eyes that can like express to us. Um, there's also like one of the craziest things I've ever read was the when you point, like a dog doesn't look at your finger. It looks to where you're pointing. I know. Uh, but there are primates. They're very closely related to human primates that mm. will look at your finger. Like like dogs evolved this. And like we accelerated their evolution in a very specific way that our very close kin are, are not doing. Like, um, and you, mm. can, you can try this with any variety of animal and point somewhere and you will notice they go like, oh, yes, what's on your finger? Whereas a dog's like, oh, what is your intention? What are you thinking? What should I be paying attention to? They I come know. out of the room already yeah. doing that. Um, so they learn so many words. Yeah. And, they, 
and have non-spoken uh, ways of communicating with us that no other animal does. I mean, someone read my book the other day and said to me their favourite line was, would you know if a duck was sad? Um, <laughs> I have that written down. That's so good. Which sounds like a bad riddle. But, like, I was thinking about it a lot because I think I know when my dog is not happy because yeah. he's body language changes and I can tell when he's distressed. You know, just this morning he knocked over something really loud and he hates loud noises. So he ran over to the other side of the room and jumped on my boyfriend's lap. And, like, I'm not, I know there must be a certain level of projecting human emotion onto an animal. Sure, we're going to anthropomorphize up and down. But the neat thing about dogs... Oh, he was distressed. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I hear what you're saying. Yes, we will anthropomorphize and we will project onto them. Yet... Research study after study after study says you're not doing as much as you think you are. Like they really are, you really are attuned to their emotional state. They really are attuned to your emotional state. Um, They pick up on our body language. We pick up on their body language. We know how they're. We know the differences in their barks. Know the differences in the tone in our voice. We sense when we're holding them that something's going on. They sense when they're holding us that something's going on. And they go the extra step with this incredible 300 million, you know, uh, nerve receptors in their nose. They. They can smell things that are happening to us that are that are the output of emotional states long before we can feel it in consciousness, long before it arrives in consciousness and is bubbling up from within us bodily and viscerally. The um, the and then these other things. It's not it's not trivial that we have these bonds or that we feel this way because you you write that that lowers our our anxiety, lowers our blood pressure, lowers our cholesterol. You're less likely to have a yeah. heart attack if you have a dog. Um, yeah, it's better, very convincing. You have a better immune system if you have a dog. Uh, you have your social life improves. You become more physically active. These, there's an enormous benefit. In fact, if you don't have a dog and you're listening to this, um, I prescribe you a dog. Uh, I want you to go get a dog as soon as possible. Um, the uh, here's the thing that this is. Then this is the great transition into the very specific dogs that you talked about. You mm-hmm. wrote a 2009 study with a, nearly a thousand owners. These people said in times of stress, they were more likely to turn to their dogs for comfort than to their parents, siblings, or children. I know. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you brought that that one up because it's so funny when you're researching for a long project, like a book, and there's so much information you go through and you've got millions of different tabs open and you're trying to keep sort of um, the, your curiosity alive and you're trying to sort stuff between what I find interesting, what is interesting and still be interested and all that sort of stuff. That has stayed with me so much throughout it all because I think it's so interesting because that to me speaks to me, uh, speaks to something uh, that I think I explored a lot with the people I interviewed for the book and that is that dogs can provide a sort of comfort that you just cannot get from a human being. And sometimes, and the, you know, the reverse is true, obviously, but sometimes you need the type of comfort and the type of solace that is nonverbal, um, that doesn't come with any judgment, that doesn't even come with expectations of you feeling better or being able to communicate or being a friend or reciprocating. Like there's no judgment or anything. And even, like, I love my parents so much. I don't have children. Um, I do have a sister I adore. Um, I can pick up the phone. I feel, you know, I'm incredibly lucky. I'm bonded with my family and I'm fond of my family, um, like, extremely. And I do go to them for support. But that statement still resonates with me because sometimes I'm not 
emotionally prepared to interact with other human beings. And there's something so very special about that silent, warm comfort that you get from a little dog. Well, I mean, it's it's (laughs) like, it's truly unconditional love, right? Like, like there, there may be treats and food involved, but there, but it's, it's unconditional. There's, there's a reason when they write, when they make like science fiction stories about the post-apocalypse, they're walking around with a dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the world may have ended and I may be alone, but I have my dog, right? And there's a reason why when you watch a movie and the people are in peril, you're like, mm. but when the dog is in peril, you're like, you better not, you better oh my not. God. I will yeah. turn this off and I will burn, I will burn my television if you do this. The I will leave this theater and I will never watch another movie you make if you hurt the dog. Oh my uh, God. Yes. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's unconditional. And it reminds me of what, what Jung would say, like Carl Jung, of the, like, when you, when you learn that unconditional love exists, mm. it, yeah, there's no unlearning that. that. You've learned yeah. that that's, that's, that that's, a, that's, you're capable of it. Mm-hmm. And it's also, you learn that it's available to you. There is no coming back from that. That bell is wrong forever. And that is something you do gain from the relationship you have with a dog. Like that is a, like, if you've ever watched a, a video of a dog mourning their their owner, oh, have you, yeah. you ever seen a child in distress and the dog just knows it and just comes up and is just like, I don't know what's happening here, but you need this. That is mm-hmm. something that you may or may not be able to receive from other human beings, or you know, if you do receive it, there is going to, as, as unconditional as we hope to be, it's, it may not be even with our emotional repertoire to be unconditional in that way, even though we may seek it out, but it is, mm-hmm. No, it is not diminished in the seeking. It is not diminished in the um, the desire to to achieve it. And knowing that it's there, knowing that it's possible, allows us to like aspire to it with our fellow persons. And I think that's oh, true. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me get that. So let me bring this into. You did something in the book where like that's all great. Like you could have just stopped there and been like, "Isn't this nice to talk about?" But you you said, "Okay, what if I?" explored that deeply and I met a bunch of different dogs and you did this really cool thing structurally where you, um, you did character studies of dogs and each, and each one served as a way to give the reader a chance to understand something deeper about this doesn't just end here. We're now doing things with dogs that you may be very surprised about. You started with Bertie um, talking about depression and, um, and you mentioned earlier uh, how Bertie had helped you in that regard, but then you go into the science of it. Dogs can, and I know this is going to sound really strange. Dogs can smell depression, and uh, it's not—it's odd to say, but you know, we're a biological organism who produces stress hormones when we are stressed. Yeah. We have changes in our body posture, in our face, and our behaviors changes. Um, if you could talk a little bit about what dogs pick up on in, the, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, thank you for asking this question because, like. I've just had this theory for a long time. I have no background in veterinary science or science of any kind, but I just think that my dog can smell depression. (laughs) And I was, (laughs) and I just, I just, I just had this theory for so long. And I just, because I had, you know, so much time on my hands being um, debilitated by a mood disorder um, at times in my life, I was thinking about why he knows that something is wrong. And as you say, part of it is the fact that, you know, probably my shoulders were slumped and I was sort of moping about the house and not as mobile and my voice had no vim to it. Um, 
But I just became obsessed with this idea that he could smell depression on me. And why not? Because I also knew that dogs can smell things like malaria and Parkinson's and certain types of cancer and all sorts. And, you know, as we're probably going to hear more about in the news, COVID. Um, So why wouldn't they be able to smell something like an increase in cortisol um, or maybe even a particular pheromone that we're putting out, whatever it might be? So basically, I just made a habit of asking anyone who might be an expert in dogs or science whether that might be true. And that happens, like, you know, pleasantly often when you are promoting a dog-related book. Um, so uh, there was a case, they basically tried to find just a really well-respected canine expert. And I did, his Canadian, I cannot off the top of my head remember his name, but he, bless him, has written so many best-selling books about dogs and dog behaviour. And I wrote him a little email being like, Hello, my name is Kate. Um, I'm writing a a book about how much I love my dog. Uh, Please confirm or deny whether he can smell my depression. And he sort of very generously came back to me and he was like, you know what, probably. He was like... You know, like, I, and I'm happy with that answer. And he he went into the stuff of, you know, he can probably tell that your mood is off because of your movements and your changes in behaviour. But, yes, it's entirely possible and not at all silly to present the idea that dogs can smell depression. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, like, basically, you know, who is funding research into whether dogs can smell depression? They should. I would if I had the money. And um, But they don't have enough evidence they don't have enough research to you know categorically say yes depression has a smell and dogs have very fancy noses and they can well, detect I mean we can speculate up. I mean the evidence backs that hypothesis if we want to get scientific about it and the, mm. the there is good evidence to suggest that hypothesis would be borne out in the research because yes. as you talk in the book dogs are more empathetic than many of many non-human primates uh, dogs can experience emotional contagion uh, if you get mm-hmm. very and excited, they will match that anger and excitement. They will become angry. Uh, if you become sad, they will become sad. If you become alert, they become alert. Uh, dogs also, very strangely, this is not true across all animal species, they can catch yawns. And yawning... <laughs> yes. Right? Like, like yawning uh, as a, is, is something that has been studied strangely by psychology and neuroscience quite a bit. And the fact mm-hmm. that yawning is contagious is a very fascinating primate thing and dogs are not in that lineage they yet they will catch yawns from us which means they are very attuned to what's happening around them and um, you're more likely to catch a yawn from someone you care about right so, so good, I'm, right? Always, I'm always watching Bert when I yawn I'm like is he yawning is he yawning does he care about me and he does so, <laughs> so to piggyback off that let's talk uh, I'm gonna uh I want to talk about Pip because this is something yeah. that I can tell I'm going to tell everyone about for a long time yes I do Though we haven't done the research into the depression uh, aspect of this, we have done a tremendous amount of research into things like malaria and Parkinson's cancers. And um, of all things, I did not know this existed. There is something called a diabetic alert dog, um, Mm. which uh, to just sort of lob that up for you and have you talk about it. Let's talk about Pip the Border Collie and Katie who got this uh, dog and did something really fascinating based off a YouTube video. Yeah, so Katie, her name's Katie Gregson. She lives in Blackpool in the UK and she would be 18 years old now, but she was diagnosed with diabetes when she was, I think, less than two years old. I think she was the youngest patient to be diagnosed with diabetes. Um, So she's lived with it literally as long as she can remember. And, you know, in her case, I I know there's a sort of spectrum of severity, but in her case, it's, it's a it affects her every waking hour. 
um, and as you'll read, also during her sleeping hours. Um, it's a huge medical condition that she's had to manage. Um, she is one of the most extraordinary young women I've met, and I love to meet young women who are doing wonderful things. It just gives me, you know, hope for the future and whatever. She is great. So <laughs> she, I think she was about 10 when she started doing this. She got this border collie called Pip, who is as beautiful as all border collies are. Um, and she decided she wanted to train the dog to become a diabetic alert dog. Um, and there's not a lot of, it's not very common over here in the UK, or it certainly wasn't when she was 10 years old, so eight years ago. Uh, so, she, yeah, she watched YouTube videos mostly from America, I think, because um, you'll be pleased to know that America seems to be just, like, quite a lot more advanced in their approach to dog stuff in general. <laughs> dog <laughs> research, letting dogs on airplanes, you know, letting dogs in courtrooms. They're very open to having dogs in places where other countries are like, no, no dogs in here. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I got to be proud of something. Thank you. Yeah, well, there you go. It's very specific. But, yeah, she watched these YouTube videos and she essentially learnt over a very long period of time, she's a very patient young woman, uh, to train the dog to smell when she had changes in her blood sugar. Yes. So with um, she basically, like she explained this to me last night actually when I had my book launch and I made her explain it to it in, in very simple terms to people. She essentially like taught the dog to um, identify she put saliva on a cotton wool pad and put it in a little box little uh, pot mm. and taught the dog to tell the difference um, between high and low and normal blood sugar and then kind of essentially taught the dog to bark and make a fuss um, in association to the smell of high or low blood sugar and then taught the dog to associate that smell with Katie. So not just any smell anywhere, it had to be associated to Katie. And this sort of training period probably took at least 18 months in kind of stages of every day just wow. persistently just taking these little spit samples out of the freezer and training her dog. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, incredible alongside the sort of generally like complicated, exhausting experience of being a young woman and then a child and a teenager. She was also just putting the work in to train an animal to look after her, um, which I just think is amazing. So sure. basically, yeah, Pip learned to bark and make a fuss and actually go and get uh, Katie's parents because she was a child. So she, you know, that makes sense um, if there was something wrong. So Pip sleeps next to Katie, like Katie in her bed, Pip in her bed on the floor, and Pip basically stays awake during the night um, to monitor Katie's blood sugar levels. Because uh, I actually didn't know this um, about diabetes, but, like, you can slip into a coma or have a seizure while you're asleep if your blood sugar goes too high um. too low. Um, so you, you are actually in danger at all times. Mm. And, of course, when you're, when you're awake, usually if you're still in the stage of being able to recognise your symptoms because as you go on, like it's sort of human nature to kind of become uh, so used to the feeling of having a high or a low that you don't necessarily identify your own warning signs. Mm -hmm. um, so, you you know, being having severe diabetes is a really dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so Pip is basically the world's cutest shift worker um, and she sleeps in and sleeps into lunchtime and sort of, ha- you know, naps during the day um, and stays alert during the night in case Katie has a high or a low. Uh, I met Katie's dad with her at a cafe when I interviewed them um, and he estimates that Pip saves Katie's life once a week. I asked her the same, I asked her the same question yesterday and she said once a day. Because, I mean, without having another person supervise you at nighttime um, or being hooked up to some kind of a device or whatever, mm-hmm. like how else are you going to have any way of knowing when you're unconscious, whether you're in danger? So this dog is just the most extraordinary animal, also has a really lovely life, has a, a poodle friend who's totally useless and doesn't have a job, um, <laughs> and they go for lovely walks in the English <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think she gets to go and watch Katie play cricket and all this sort of lovely stuff. Um, she's also capable of doing 60 different tricks just for fun. Um, so they're quite an extraordinary pair. Uh, but, yeah, as you said, there's, there's actually a lot of really lovely, heartwarming research. It's um, so, oh, my God, I want to get into this. This is like, so, like, yeah. the dogs are, dogs are very great at positive reinforcement. I am vehemently opposed to using negative reinforcement because dogs oh, are so same. Good, yes. Oh, my God. Um, and because there's a whole other world of positive reinforcement, I, I uh, always came from that school of like um, dogs are social. You know, they co-evolve with us, and then they also are social creatures in the sense that they they will they respond to positive reinforcement. And um, you know, it's very difficult to train a cat. I've trained Simon to do all sorts of things. He can sit, roll over, fetch. Uh, I even can can tell, oh yeah, I can tell it. Oh. I can, I've taught him all sorts of tricks. I taught him how to. <laughs> I, can, I even have a command where I say, "Run like a cartoon," and he'll stop and go. No, no. <laughs> are you lying to me? I am not lying to you. Uh, he, oh, he, I, cat, training a cat is different because cats, um, it's uh, you know, they need to basically you have to trick a cat into believing it was their idea. So, <laughs> so uh, which <laughs> do, but the um, and you can use the you know very old school conditioning on a cat, but dogs dogs will do things just for the fact that they love you. They want they they yeah. do it because they want to see you. I mean, I know this is anthropomorphizing, but they want to—they want to feel that you're proud of them in a way, which you know it's more complex than that. But it's—but this is what's okay. happening. Yeah. But dogs also have a sense of smell that is absolutely science fiction level incredible, and uh, and they're a biological organism that can communicate with you. So um, you can leverage that if you use positive reinforcement with their incredibly powerful sense of smell. Uh, you can do things like Katie did, and. Um, for anyone who's like, well, I want some science behind this. You have in the book that, uh, and I'm looking at the notes right here. The um, they uh, they studied the efficacy of the diabetic alert dogs, and ninety seven, not between ninety and ninety seven percent of the time, they accurately were able to to smell the a a spike or a drop. So yeah, they can do this, and since they can do this, you can train them to do things when they when they sense that, and. That's what Katie's dog does. Katie will, I know you talk like she has, even has like a, a nice version of it where she'll scoot up next to her and slap her with her tail, right? <laughs> so like, yeah. Sort of wake you up and say something's going on. But here's the thing that blew my mind. Um, even when you have an incredible like uh, device for this, uh, the ons- basically the device is, can tell you that the onset of, of symptoms has already taken place. Like 15 minutes into the bad thing that's happening, you need to take action a dog can sense that this is going to happen to you 
half an hour before the onset. They, they are sensing something at, the, at like the atomic molecular level that's kind of happening to your body that gives you a 30-minute window before it even starts to actually happen. They, they sense yeah. the stages that precede it. That is astonishing to me. And you yeah. mentioned this with cancer. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, maybe the most, so like there's so much cancer research you talk about. Uh, they're, they're, and the research, the studies show, yes, they, uh, dogs can sense tumors growing in the body. They can, and sometimes they intuit it without training. They can, um, so like this is an innate sense that must be trained, but sometimes dogs are just like savants in this regard. They'll nudge their owner in the place where they sense that something bad is growing inside them. They can smell lung cancer on the breath. They can sense ovarian cancer from smelling it in blood, but the, and malaria. But the thing that, this is super astonishing to me. They, in one case, a dog was sensing Parkinson's onset six years before the diagnosis. I know. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm so pleased to be able to hear the like astonishment in your voice because when I was when I came across those I those statistics and those those facts, I had to read and I, a lot of them were in really long, very dull scientific report documents so i'd be reading along be like okay okay the method this the control that okay okay give me the the sexy stuff the stats and i'd get something like that and i'd be like oh my god i have to read it again because it's just remarkable six years i mean i also in that research read about this incredible woman who can smell parkinson's um who just has like a dog level nose um I didn't get to speak to her, but I would love to. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're not capable of knowing that. We could live with an illness, um, as people do all the time, and, and not know it, not be aware of it, particularly when symptoms don't show up that are alarming enough to push us to go to the doctor. Um, so just incredible that a dog would be able to, de to detect something as life-threatening um, and life-changing as Parkinson's so far ahead. Yeah. And, it, I mean... And, you know, the good news is that, I mean... Um, dogs will be with us for forever as long as we like stay alive as a species and they'll, they'll probably go with us to other Which planets. is a good question, but that's another conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure they'll go with us to Mars and beyond. But like we, um, researchers based off of this sort of thing, especially the Parkinson thing, like, oh, wow, you can detect Parkinson. This taught doctors and scientists that we could build devices to mm -hmm. detect Parkinson's in a way that we didn't know we could do before. And dogs gave us that gift. And mm -hmm. so there are going to be, at some point in the next 100 years, we'll have very powerful uh, devices that pick up molecules that come off of the body and and can do something similar to what dogs are doing. And that gift will have been given to us by this long, strange history of co-evolving with these yeah. wolves that were following us around and then got really cute. And then we enjoyed <laughs> the love cute thing and then we started going, well, this love cute thing also happens to have a superpower compared to us. What if we combine these two things together and we've gotten all these incredible results from it? Um, yeah. Of course, I like for me, the entry point with the cancer and the Parkinson's is, is absolutely astonishing. But you also, I know I've been talking to you for an hour and a half, so I'll try to slowly wrap <laughs> things up here. But um, it's my favorite. Talk, don't worry. Okay, good. You, you, you slowly talk. I mean, I, I, well, I'll slowly wrap things up here. But you also talk about there are other ways to do this that don't necessarily involve this the super um, sense organ um, you talk about Missy, the autism pug um, mm -hmm. and how there is so much research about how people who are affected by autism um, 
you give them like a stuffed animal versus a dog and they're far more responsive to the dog. They, they become less aggressive, less self-absorbed. Uh, they diminish cortisol production. Everyone in the home's cortisol goes down. And when yeah. you put the dog into that situation, dogs who are specifically trained to be helpful for people who are suffering with autism or living with autism, I guess would be a better way to put it. They, um, it, a lot, it gives them the opportunity to react. They learn to react to this unconditional loving creature that then gives them a skill set to, to, to pick up on cues from human beings and react to human beings. And it's like a, a bootstrapping for them. And then also, in addition to that, when they feel deep, difficult emotions, they know they can go to the animal. And there's a, you, you detail this in the whole story about this very particular dog. If you want to talk about that any, at any length, I think I may have already said all of it. And I saw it, I'm very excited about it. It's really, it's, no, you've covered some great stuff. And I love that you want to talk about Missy. Uh, Missy um, belongs to a young man, an 11-year-old boy called Cody, Cody Lacey. Um, who lives with autism and, you know, that has made his life very difficult. Um, he has a loving family, um, which is very lucky and lovely. Uh, but, you know, he's had difficulty going to school, making friends, um, doing academic work. Um, he, you know, really devastatingly um, was talking about wanting to hurt himself and, and, and uh um, some sort of dark thoughts he'd had because autism can be, you know, there is a spectrum, of course. Um, it can be very mild. It can be very severe. But um, it really affected this young boy. And um, endearingly, I mean, a lot of autistic people sort of develop um, an obsessive, obsessive area of interest where they become an expert in something and they, they can kind of apply their hyper-focus that comes to them to, to gathering information about a, a particular thing. Uh, this young man, his thing, his thing in life is pugs. He just loves them. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, like, he went through a really rough patch um, his mum went through a really rough patch because caring for a child who's in distress um, is just incredibly debilitating emotionally right. and otherwise. Um, and it was his birthday and she went online, found a pug fan page and said, can everyone send pictures of your pug? Um, they did. And basically, uh, you know, I could I could talk about this for a long time, but basically the pug, the pug changed his life. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think about that a lot. I also spoke to another woman called Geraldine uh, McHughie who uh, works for Assistance Dogs Northern Ireland um, and she places, she trains and then places therapy dogs with um, families who have autistic children. Most of the time they're Labradors because they're such a sort of reliably sensible, calming breed. But I love that there's an autism support pug uh, behind the, the the pug as a as a therapy dog. Um, but yeah, I mean, you covered most of the the stuff. There's just some lovely research about how soothing and calming a, a small creature. Oh, can you detail so many of these stories. Noodle, uh, a dog who helps people with dementia. Noodle, have, noodle, yes. Who wake can wake people into uh, versions of themselves that we thought were previously lost. Yeah. Uh, dogs that help people who are recovering from strokes. Dogs who help people who are, have uh, disassociative identity disorders. Mm -hmm. um, dogs who are who PTSD. are PTSD. Uh, dogs who bring who are brought into courtrooms to help people who yeah. are victims of sexual violence. And this mm -hmm. is the dog's role in life. Uh, very, 
uh, dogs that uh, are brought into the classroom to help people learn to read. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, my God. The, the um, Let's end with that, and, uh, and I will uh, uh, achingly let you go because it's such a beautiful topic. Echo the therapy, the teaching therapy dog. Yes. Um, I think this was of everything in the book. I was like, I was like, I understand that. But the idea that a dog helps people read was like, excuse me. So if you could talk about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so interesting. So Echo lives with a woman called Aideen, who's a primary school teacher at a special needs school called St. Gerard's in Northern Ireland. And uh, she wanted a dog, but her husband said to her, like, you can't get a dog and then leave the dog at home all day while we're out with our jobs. So wonderfully cunning woman that she was, she thought, fine, I'll get a dog I can take to school with me. So I'll get the dog a job at school. <laughs> and she was telling me about how this incredible dog has been trained to be a therapy dog and helps children read. And I was like, okay, sure, cool. Yeah, that sounds lovely. And I spoke to her and we both actually, to be honest, had a bit of a cry because it was really emotional because she was telling me about how you know, a little girl told the dog that her mother had died because she was too frightened to tell an adult human being so couldn't confess that she was very upset to her teachers but she was comfortable enough to talk to the dog, all of that. And I, even I, even after doing the research for all the other chapters, because this is one of the latter chapters that I did, I was like, really? The song helps children read? How? What? Come on. Uh, and then I just... <laughs> Yeah. And then I really, you know, dove into reading all this research to back up exactly what she told me to understand how it works. And it's really persuasive stuff. Like they've done studies in classrooms with children who hated reading and had quite low literacy levels um, and basically did, you know, one classroom gets to read to a dog and the other classroom gets to read to their teacher or their parents. Yeah. Um, and obviously you know which classroom you want to be in, but uh, <laughs> basically the, the kids who are reading to a dog, and when I say reading to a dog, depending on their age and their psychological development, sometimes they do think the dog is listening. And you know what? I don't disagree with them. But depending on how old they are, these children are reading to the dog either thinking this dog loves this story and I'm going to specifically choose a story about squirrels and, and you know, cats and stuff so that the dog is interested, or they're just reading to a, a sort of friendly audience. Mm -hmm. uh, either way, all these studies came back with really convincing evidence that the children who read to a dog improved yeah. their literacy level. You have two studies in particular. One, uh, the dog doubled the reading comprehension of the class. Uh, yeah. And another one, reading to the dog Tango, which I like the name, in, yes. in grade two, Increased the skills but compared to a control at the end of the study by two grade levels of the course of the year. And uh, the students, <laughs> it was because Tango is such a good listener. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what I mean is that, like, they do, I mean, children, um, you know, but believe that dogs have the types of thoughts and interests that might correspond to listening to a lovely story. Yeah. Um, and I, that's so powerful. And it also, you know, Again, it's that lack of judgment because, um, I mean, I, you know, I come from a, a lineage of trained actors. When I was asked to read in class, I would clear my throat and straighten 
straighten my back and like you know perform but I know that for a lot of my friends and a lot of kids like going through school and being asked to read aloud is one of the most stressful experiences you can have particularly if you're dyslexic or have a learning disability or just are frightened of the attention that's suddenly put on you during a vulnerable time of either childhood or god forbid your teenage years you know people looking at you can be really confronting so having a non-judgmental friendly adorable furry floppy eared audience to practice on before you have to read aloud to other human beings it's such a lovely experience I you know like emo- on an emotional level before I understood it on an intellectual level I get that you know I get that it's lovely and I want to end on something here because uh this as a topic may seem strange for a psychology podcast but um you mentioned something, and uh, I don't think most people know this, but Freud uh, carried a dog with him into therapy after a while named Jofi, yeah. and considered the dog a character analyst who could read the emotional states of the clients. So Freud was onto this way before we were onto this, and it's sort of lost to the literature and to history, but it's a big part of psychology's uh, uh, like growth as a... Mm-hmm. a discipline dogs were involved from the very beginning i just want everybody to know that and we've discredited a lot of the stuff that freud said but he was not wrong about the dog <laughs> <laughs> i could not hear that a better note than that oh my god kate this has been so fantastic it's always great to talk to you uh i want everyone to get your book and i'm very happy that you moved on to this as a topic it's such a great uh you know expansion of, of what you're interested in right now about all of us trying to be better at um being vulnerable and open and caring about each other and saying we're all in this together. You, pre- you, you were very prescient about that when it came to what would become a, the, this became a value that was, that moved up our hierarchy all the way to the very top post COVID mm-hmm. and to introduce dogs into that, I think is really beautiful. And I really thank you for it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for getting everything I tried to achieve with the book. It's just such a joy to speak to someone who, you know, connected with it in that way. You have a deeper message within the dog book then aren't dogs great uh it is about in the end it's about unconditional love and i think that's uh i think that comes across very quickly and i just think it's beautiful and i really thank you for oh, it thank you so much i'm so you've you've honestly made my day thank you so much <laughs> well, so good all right i wish you absolutely the best thank you so thank much you and you too such a joy to speak to you That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also, go to Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart to join the nearly half a million people who are on there talking about the episodes. And if you'd like to support the one person operation you're listening to right now that's right one person operation which means this is very helpful go to patreon you can help make it better help pay for transcription other features at patreon.com slash you are not so smart pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free but the higher amounts get you posters t-shirts signed books and other stuff the opening music is clash by caravan palace this music is by banjo apocalypse and if you really really want to support the show tell everyone you know about it Talk about it on social media and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Thank you.